earmuffs on even. You know, I was like, oh my goodness, what is going on? But today is the day the Lord has made, and you are in the house of God. So that means the sun, the S-O-N, is always shining. So moms, I'm going to tie this word into your lives at the end. But for everyone's sake today, let's go to Matthew chapter 11. Thank you for coming. And everybody say, come to Jesus. Thank you. Come to Jesus. You'll see how that is in our message today. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the whole book of Matthew this year. If you are new, you can find it on our website, the notes, or our app. Bible says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Somebody say, teach and preach. Amen. Everybody who wants to be like Jesus needs to know how to teach and preach. My wife was talking about this yesterday. We had the life group join with us in the evangelism truck. I think there was over 30 people out there, Jefferson Park, uh, Blue Line. It was awesome. We're going to be doing that with all the life groups this summer. Everyone needs to learn to teach and preach. This is not a spectator sport. You get to get on the court with your boy, okay? You get to get on the court. Don't just sit back and watch me. Don't just watch me do a one hour a week. Man, let's get out there and change lives, amen? And we get that from our Lord and Savior because he came teaching and preaching. Verse 2, when John was in prison, he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one or the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What happened? John got locked up. You see, we learned about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 that he was a great preacher and he was a preacher of repentance, but he got himself in trouble. We'll hear about the story later as it then tells how he is beheaded. So right now, let's take some of that information and apply it right here. He was preaching against a political leader named King Herod who had cheated on his wife with his brother's wife. In other words, he got it on with his sister-in-law. Everybody go, ugh. You don't want to do that. That's bad. I think my sister-in-law is beautiful. She's an amazing woman, but I have mine. Amen. Okay, so John the Baptist, as a good preacher, called that out and said, you shouldn't be doing that. So they locked him up. While he was locked up, the, the woman, she got her daughter to dance in front of King Herod and turn him on to get a request. And the request was to behead John the Baptist. That's how much that woman hated John the Baptist. She used her daughter to dance dirty to get that man killed. John the Baptist is now alive. He's in jail. And Jesus is preaching and teaching, doing what he's supposed to do. But we see here this mighty man of God who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, who even proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, going to take away the sins of everybody, who actually saw the dove come down, the Holy Spirit, and the Father speak from heaven. There's a sign of the Trinity, the Father from heaven, Son in the water, Holy Spirit coming down. He's doubting now. John is now doubting. Why? Because he's locked up. Something happened in his life to where when his disciples came to visit him, he now has to know, is this really Jesus the Messiah that I'm supposed to follow or is someone else supposed to come? Why do you think he's thinking that? Why do you think after having all the signs and wonders you could possibly have to want to believe in the Messiah, literally God speaking from heaven, how many would say, that's it for me, I'm convinced, but how many also know something had to happen to make that guy doubt? This tells us that something had to be so deep in his heart 
emotional or theological that caused him to say, guys, you got to go check in with him to see whether or not he's the real deal because I'm not sure if he is. I want to talk to you about doubt just for a little bit right now. All of us can have our doubts. Generally, doubts come in two different ways, emotional or theological. And theological, you could say, is mental, emotional or mental. I don't know what kind of doubt he is having here, but let's talk about each one. Number one, we can have emotional doubts when our feelings get hurt in life and we don't feel that God is there for us. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever had doubts out of your feelings? It's not like something changed, like you had an argument. It's not like somebody logically proved something to you and the Bible was wrong. It's just something doesn't feel right. If God is God, you shouldn't feel that way. Those are emotional doubts. Oftentimes I see people struggle with emotional doubts when they lose a loved one. Generally someone that they weren't ready to lose. A parent losing a child. A child losing one of their best friends. A husband losing a wife and then having to take care of the children. Have you ever gone through something in life that made you doubt all your past experiences with God? If you have been through something like that, you can relate to John the Baptist. There would have been nobody with a greater experience with Jesus than John, and yet John is here now doubting. Why is he doubting? He's in jail. I'm locked up. They won't let me out. Oh, no, they won't let me out. Dude, he's locked up. The Messiah wasn't supposed to do him like that. He was supposed to be running with the Messiah through the streets like King David, conquering the nations. And now he's in jail and Jesus, he's looking through maybe the dungeon, you know, bars. He's seeing Jesus out there walking on water. He's seeing Jesus making it rain bread everywhere he goes, eating and drinking at the wedding, healing the sick. And he's like, what about me? You ever feel like you're left out? Left out of life? Everybody else is enjoying their time with Jesus, but you're locked up in that same job, locked up in that same relationship, locked up your same finances, and you look at Instagram, you look at Facebook, and everybody's blessed, everybody's putting that hashtag blessed, everybody's putting that hashtag making moves, and you're wondering where Jesus is in your life. It's emotional. It hurts. And during those times, somebody just giving you a Bible verse or just trying to give you head knowledge may not work. The Bible's always relevant to our lives, of course. But if it's not attached to the love of God, even Mormons have the Bible, even Jehovah Witnesses have the Bible, it can become just more noise if you don't have your heart open. The other kind is theological, and that's where the deep thinking comes in. Maybe you're looking at the Bible one day, and you start to read a story, and then you see it in the gospel as described in one way, and then you look at another story, uh, I mean another gospel, the same story, and yet it's told a different way. Maybe you've looked at the resurrection accounts, and one resurrection said it was this woman that came first, and then another account in the gospel says that woman came first, and then all of a sudden in your head you're doubting. Maybe he never rose from the dead. They can't get their stories straight. Or you look at different things in the Bible like the Trinity, and you go, oh, man, how could that be true? This Muslim told me that the Trinity is a pagan belief. Maybe that is true. Why am I believing in three persons being one God? That doesn't make sense. Or maybe somebody from your job said something just basic to you. If God was with you and the Bible says he'll answer all your prayers, why are you still here? 
Why don't you pray to be the boss? Why don't you pray to start your own company? Why are you failing? I'm actually your boss, right? Maybe your boss picks on you. You're supposed to have answers to prayer. And see, theological things, they need theological answers. Generally, they come from understanding the Bible more clearly. I love how quiet it is in this room right now, by the way. It is super quiet right now. You're like, man, you're reading my mail right now, Pastor. I've had emotional doubts. I've had theological doubts. See, theological doubts have to come from understanding the Scripture. So you can't come with a closed mind to God going, prove it to me, God. And then every time God tries to put it in your mind, you're like, you're like you can't come in. Theological doubt needs you to open your mind to see maybe if you're misunderstanding things. Maybe if you piece together the timelines of the resurrection, you'll actually see they, they don't contradict, they complement. Maybe if you actually start looking at how God answers prayer, God answers prayer oftentimes on his schedule, not on our schedule. And maybe you'll start to understand that the Trinity is beyond our understanding, but the Trinity is taught in the scripture, and that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so to have emotional doubt resolved, you have to open your heart. To have intellectual doubt resolved, you have to open your mind. And so I like this about John the Baptist. He doesn't hide his doubts. He brings his doubts to his disciples, and then he sends them out to go find out what's really going on. Now look at what Jesus says. It says, when he heard about this, he replied, verse 4, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is being proclaimed to the poor, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I don't think his was emotional. Because the way Jesus answered him was not emotional. In emotional doubt, Jesus would have said something like, I got you, John. I'm right there with you. I'm giving you a spiritual hug right now. Don't give up, dude. Psalm 23. I don't think John has having an emotional doubt. No offense against those who've had those kinds of doubts. I actually have had that. And I might talk about that here if I have some time. But listen to me. He answers him theologically. He basically quotes to him the prerequisites in Isaiah 61 that the uh, Messiah would have to do. And that's actually the scriptures that Jesus reads in Luke when he's in the synagogue. And he says, this day in your hearing it's been fulfilled. But what had happened? Intellectually, John, along with all the other Jews at that time, had gotten confused by mixing the first and second coming of Jesus together. They combined them, and they got theologically confused. See, the Jews thought that when Jesus came, he was going to heal, but he was also going to destroy Heal the Jews, destroy the pagans. They thought Jesus was going to come, the Messiah, preach and teach, but then set the world on fire. They saw Jesus coming, destroying the world and only doing good for Israel. And yet Jesus is now theologically teaching him, you're not getting it. I'm going to come the first time, do all of these things, then do Isaiah 53, die on a cross for sins, resurrect, go to heaven, send the Holy Spirit to the church to preach to all the non-Jews, then come back and judge the world, punish the people, and all of those things. Everybody go, oh, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. But you see, John didn't understand that. 
John had a theological doubt because he had read into the scriptures just one coming of Jesus and therefore he was confused to why he wasn't with Jesus conquering the nations. Now, how many non-Jewish people here are happy that Jesus has a plan for the other nations, tribes, and tongues? You see, if Jesus would have did it all in that coming, we wouldn't have been there. We would literally be the servants of the Jewish people living outside of kingdom blessings. But now because of Jesus' first coming, fulfilling the Jewish law, now the age of the church, the gospel, which was started on Pentecost, can now go to all peoples, all languages, and all tribes. So you notice what had to happen here, though. John had to trust somebody when he couldn't trust himself. Can I give you a phrase to remember in your doubts? Doubt your doubts. So next time you have an emotional doubt and you get this thing in your your feelings and feelings just want to be felt and you don't feel that God loves you, doubt your doubts and ask the disciples around you what's really going on. And then when you say it out loud, you might see why we're all going to doubt it with you. Well, my world is falling apart. I've lost this person I love. I don't think God loves me anymore. I doubt that. Can I tell you what he really thinks about you? The Bible says your name is written on the palm of his hand. The Bible says no one can take you out of his hands. The Bible says neither life nor death can take you from his love. Believe that. You see, John had to trust the disciples that came back and gave him that report. If John then kept doubting, that's his fault now. It's okay to have doubts, but you have to be open to resolving those doubts. If you just keep questioning everything, you won't get any answers. One real cool person, spray painted in a tunnel, question everything. And then some smart aleck came by and then spray painted, why? question mark. You see, if you keep questioning everything and questioning everything, you'll never get an answer. At some point, you have to stop questioning and start believing. I mean, we can make marriage ceremonies three hours long, and you promise to never do this, and you promise never to do that, and you promise, 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 in this situation, never do this. Or we can begin to learn to trust love. I'll never leave you. I'm here till death do us part. Here's my ring and promise. And hasn't God given us enough reasons to trust him? Did John the Baptist get abandoned by God? No, he knew the stories. The prophets always faced hardships and persecution. And as they came back and began to talk to him, it wasn't nonsense. They were quoting back to him the prophecies of the prophets he admired so much. So at this point, he could really rationally resolve his doubts. So God isn't wanting you to suppress your doubts and pretend they're not there. He's just wanting you to be open emotionally and intellectually for the answer to come and then to trust him. Because once again, if my children needed every answer to where we're going, what we're going to eat, what rides we're going to ride when we get there, I wouldn't want to go one place with them. At some point, they have to say, I trust daddy. Family fun day is going to be good. He hasn't let me down yet. It's going to be Chuck E. Cheese. It's going to be Six Flags. It's going to be something that we get to do. End game coming up this Tuesday, so don't spoil it for my kids. Somebody else has already tried to do that. My son started saying, oh, we're going to see that where this happens. I go, who told you that? They're not your friend. They're not your friend. <laughs> Friends don't spoil movies for you. 
So this is, this is basic, but it can go deep to the problems of our heart. John had doubts. He gets it resolved. Easy to understand. But when you're in that situation, it's a little bit different. And maybe I will share. Because about five years ago, I had some emotional doubts. I was about 80 pounds overweight. I think we had had four kids and you were pregnant with the fifth. And things kind of move slow around here. You know, I've been wanting to have property for the church and all kinds of these dreams and visions that I have. And it just felt emotionally like I'm not doing enough or I'm not good enough. And God, did I miss you along the way? Uh, God, was, was there a call somewhere around Hawaii, California, a text to Florida to plant a metro praise in Miami, Maine? Did I miss? Am I supposed to be somewhere around L.A. right now? Those of you know I don't like winters, okay? I used to like winters when I snowboarded, and then I got hurt snowboarding, and then now I just pray my way through winters. It's emotional. I'm telling you, it's emotional. But I, but I didn't feel good. Now, it didn't go on and on and on. Every day I resolved to trust God. But I began to realize that feelings that need to be felt are not facts. And so you know what I did? I called up my pastor friends. And I said, what's it like for you when you feel overweight, you know, stressed out with your family or, you know, having a big family and the needs that come with that in a church that doesn't grow as fast as you want to and weather that you don't always get to go outside and go fishing and, you know, what do you do? And I began to hear them report back to me and say, well, I go hang out with Jesus because Jesus is still healing and Jesus is still giving sight to the blind and Jesus is still preaching to the poor. And so during that time of emotional doubt, God resolved it because I was able to open my heart and hear what trusted disciples had to say from God's word. It was from my heart. And yes, they still brought me the scripture. It's not like they just gave me an Oprah Winfrey self-help book. No, you give people the scripture, but you give it with the heart. You don't just try to get them to force their way out of it. You talk to them and you say, hey, how does it feel? Okay, I understand those feelings. Or I've been through something like that. And we maybe not understand everybody's feelings, so be careful with that. But you could say, I understand what it's like to have feelings where you don't feel like you're understood. That's a complicated way of saying that we can relate to each other. And so God made a way for me. But I've also had friends have theological doubts, and I've helped them through that as well. And so we shouldn't be discouraged because we have doubts. Any thinking or feeling person will at times be where John the Baptist was, but never stay there. Be willing to grow from there because God is still doing the thing. And so the way I looked at it in my time was I might have felt like I was in this dark dungeon called Chicago getting dark at four in the evening with a church that wasn't of thousands yet, but I could talk to my friends who had seen God move in mighty ways, and I was able to trust him that even though I might not be seeing it all right here, it's still going on out there. And so that's why we need the church and other people to encourage us with the word of God because their living testimonies can encourage us when we don't have it happening in our lives. God is still moving, amen, even if we don't see it. Now watch this. Jesus begins to talk about how cool John is. Go to verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Somebody say, more than a prophet. 
thank you. This is what, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now let's go to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. We got to understand why Jesus mentioned this about John the Baptist. He said, man, what did you go out there to see when John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness? Did you go out there just to see a, 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 a reed blown by the wind, just like grass, like just somebody popular going with the trance? Were you going out there to see fashion? No, you went out there because there was a prophet out there, right? But he was more than just a prophet because there's been many prophets in the Bible. He was a messenger before the Christ. That means he's the last of the prophets. The last book of the Old Testament before there's 400 years of silence. Think about that. 400 years where there's no prophets. God prophesies what will happen. Look at Malachi 4 verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the, when the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, everybody track with me here. How many remember last week I showed you in the scripture, Jesus sends the disciples out to preach, and he says, before I come back and call the short-time mission trip over, you guys won't be done preaching to all the cities, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to judge. I'm going to come back and do the, th do the thing, in other words. You all remember that? And I said that's either the judgment of the end times, or that's the judgment of the temple in 70 A.D., how did we know, we decided back in last week, how did we know it wasn't the end times? Because Jesus says, you won't finish going to all the towns by the time I come back. Now it's the second, if it was the second coming, which we're looking forward to, haven't all the towns of Israel been reached with the gospel? They have. But what happened before they finished going to all the towns? In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Isn't that what happens there? Go to verse 5. It says, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What was that great and dreadful day? The destruction of that temple. Everybody understand this. When Jesus died on the cross, he sent the Holy Spirit to rip the temple veil in two. That meant now all Christians could have an, in, an intimate relationship with God the Father without a priesthood and without a temple because we would be the temple, without sacrifices because Jesus would be the sacrifice. Are you tracking with me? But then Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 that the temple will be destroyed and there won't be one stone upon another. Think about that. That means in 70 A.D., the old covenant was totally done away with. Now it is impossible to be a biblical Jew. You could be one by your origin, but they cannot practice biblical Judaism. Out of the 613 laws they were given by Moses, over a quarter of them have to do with the temple, sacrifices, priesthood, and so forth. Why did Jesus allow that to happen? Because he is showing them out with the old and with the new. Now, is there still a plan for God's chosen people? Yes, but now the Jews must be born again like Christians to enter in. They cannot come in on their old covenant. They can't even follow their old covenant. Are you tracking with me? They can't even make a sacrifice. So how are they going to get forgiveness of sin? And how many know forgiveness of sin is pretty important? How many know that's pretty important? They have no priests, so how do they get mediation? They have no temple, so where's the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of the Lord? They have none of it. Where is it now? In the New Testament believer, baby. 
Now the Bible says out of rebellion they'll actually make that second temple or the third temple, which will come in the end times. But that temple, God will allow to be desecrated again to teach them it's not by their religion, but he'll spare them in the end times. But it's not the biblical way of salvation. The biblical way of salvation is for Jewish people by heritage to be born again just like the Gentiles. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So let's go back to Matthew and see why that's important. Because Jesus says, John the Baptist was that Elijah. So guess, guess what's coming, guys? If the Elijah has come, what's coming right after? The destruction now. So now let's go to the next verses. Let's go to verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, there has not yet risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Woo! Is anybody here in the kingdom of heaven? Then look at your neighbor and say, I'm greater than John the Baptist. I know that feels prideful, but look at your other neighbor and say, it's biblical. It's actually biblical. Jesus actually told us to say that. You're better. You're greater. Not intrinsically as a person, but better off greater in your standing with God. Let's understand Old and New Covenants. Very important. First of all, Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest of all the people born of a woman up until that point. That includes Moses. That includes Elijah. John the Baptist is at the top of the list. Number one, that shows you Jesus got tops of the list, okay? So some of y'all just think we all going to get there to get treated the same like socialism. That ain't happening, baby. Some of y'all going to have a little shanty. Others of us going to have a mansion. It's all what you do for Jesus now. So you can hate or you can celebrate, but you better start bearing some fruit for Jesus. We're not saved by works, but we will be rewarded by works. So if you think the thief on the cross got what Peter got, you don't understand the Bible. The thief on the cross will be allowed to be in the kingdom of heaven, but he will be considered least while them boys are on thrones as the judicial court of the land. Okay, so let's just break it down. There are lists, and there are people at the top of the list. Amen? So John the Baptist, he's at the top of the list. Now, why would he be greater than uh, Moses, Elijah, any of these people? The Bible doesn't say. We're only left to guess. My best guess would be this. While Jesus was on the earth, John the Baptist was tested in a similar way to Adam and Eve with pride. John the Baptist had authority. John the Baptist had a following. John the Baptist even baptized Jesus. You see, at this point, he got about as close to divinity as you could without being divine. It's like if you got somebody in your family that can play a sport good, and whenever you go to the playground, you play with them, and when they win, you think you're really good at that sport. Or maybe you were like me growing up in church, and you couldn't sing, but you had that friend that could sing, and so you would stand next to them, and you would sing with them, and you would think like you're going to be on that stage singing with them because, you know, you, that's your friend. He had the closest relationship to Jesus even greater than all the disciples because they still doubting all throughout history. He only had uh, the three years he's with them. He only had one doubt and had all of this confidence in God, right? So he's stronger in his faith than even the disciples. But here's the deal. He said, I must become less that he becomes greater. I must decrease that he must increase. I believe John the Baptist represents the greatest act of humility we could have because instead of like Adam and Eve trying to be God, trying to take that to themselves, John the Baptist recognizes that's not me, that's him. He's God, I'm not. That's my cousin, but he's still God. 
And so what that shows us is, is that the humility of John the Baptist can never be underestimated. But now watch this. Jesus now says this, that if you're in the kingdom of heaven, that you are greater than John the Baptist, even if you are just that thief on the cross doing all your crazy stuff to the end of your life. And then, Jesus, I love you. Remember your paradise. Jesus said, even that guy's greater than John the Baptist now. Why is that? Because in the new covenant, we now have the impartation of the Holy Spirit infused into our spirit and become like Jesus. John the Baptist had to wait till he died, till his soul could be born again, and those transformations to happen. In other words, the Holy Spirit would come on him and come off him. But in the Christian's life, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you the temple and transforms your life. Jesus then says, we become his brothers and sisters. We become like him in the kingdom of God. Go to John, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 36. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Don't just take my word for it. Let me show you. See, some of y'all think Jesus is just a one-off. That nobody like Jesus. He's the only one that's perfect and all that. That's right. He's the only one that started perfect and ended perfect. We all started imperfect, but guess what he died on the cross for? For you to be made perfect and imperfect. That's why he said be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect because he's now the new stamp. You were once made like that, what is that, that, you know, Shrek, the the little talking cookie. Gingerbread. Yeah, you were once made in the image of the gingerbread, but now Jesus is going to make you in his image. Can I hear an amen? You used to be like a little gingerbread being beat up by the devil, but now you're like Jesus. Now you're a mighty woman or man of God. Amen? Go back a few verses. Go say to 36. Go to 36. Yeah, go back, let's say 30. Let's keep going. Keep going. Let me get you the exact reference right here. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, thank you, brother, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. Let's say it again. To be conformed to what? The image of his son. That he might be, talking about Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. you got to get this. Before Jesus came, John the Baptist did not have the image of Jesus. He was made in the general image of God, but the sin had taken it away when we fell. Total depravity. We were born into sin, messed up. But now we can get born again into the literal image of Jesus. So, yeah, I still look like Joe on the outside, half Italian, half Polish. You know, look at the nose for the Polish. Look at the complexion for the Italian, right? You know, uh, you can see Joe still looks the same on the outside. But on the inside, I look like Jesus. On the outside, you still look like you. But on the inside, now you look like Jesus. And John the Baptist didn't have that. John the Baptist only had a temporary experience with that. That's why we go back to the notes, please. Jesus said, in the kingdom of God, John the Baptist is the least. You guys are the greater. Why? Because we have now Jesus on the inside of us. And then look at this revelation he gives us. From the days of John the Baptist in verse 12 until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and the violent people keep, have been, keep on raiding it or keep on getting it. And so the idea is this. They hate the kingdom of God, but we love the kingdom of God more than they hate it. So let me ask you a question. Do you love pro-life more than they love pro-choice? Because that's how you're supposed to be. 
you're supposed to be more passionate about your message of pro-life than they are about pro-death. How about this? Are you more passionate about marriage and sexuality being as God defined it than they are about LGBTQAI? You need to be more passionate about the things of God than they are about the things of the world. Because the Bible says, that in the King James it says it like this, the kingdom of heaven suffers violent violence, but the violent take it by force. So the very thing that's being done against us, we do to get the kingdom of God. We don't do it against them. They're doing it against us, but we do it against our flesh and against sin and all of the things of this world that are evil so that we may inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that awesome? That's why John the Baptist was who he was. He said up until that time, this is the way it's been, and John was the greatest of those guys. He, he fought against his pride. He fought against perversion. He fought against popularity, and he was the greatest of all men. But now the least of us, we are greater than him, but we ought not lose the passion that he had. Because if John the Baptist had a passionate message of God's way or there is no other way, you know, it's tight but it's right. You either get, get right with God or you get left. Come on, somebody. I know you're not deaf. I'll rhyme a little bit there. My friend used to have a song like that. And so if we don't get like John the Baptist, we won't have the reward of him even though we had a greater status than him. How many want to have a reward like John the Baptist with the greater status, with the greater anointing? Amen. Now let's go here to the next verse. Look at what it says here, verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. So he repeats that point. Now let's go to verse 15. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, if Jesus stops and says, if you got ears, you better hear this. How many know the next thing's important? Okay, but now watch this. I, I asked the, the, the first service, after I read it, I asked them, I said, how many of you understand this? And only about two people raised their hands. So this is really crazy right now. A lot of you have been in church. You understand conferences. You understand Bible studies. You understand this. But the very thing Jesus said, y'all better, better understand, somebody, a lot of you don't understand. That's a problem, okay? So I've got to make sure you understand this more than you understand the song from K-Love, okay? Okay? But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to test you right after this. And do not lie because I might call on you. Is that mic on? Let's make sure that mic is on. Get ready. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Now tell me if you can understand this. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. How many understand what you just read? If I asked you to come up here and explain it, you would explain it. Raise your hand. Be honest. Okay, one, two, three, maybe four, any four? Do I get a four? Do I get a four? Do I got a five? Do I got a five? So about four of you. Now let's just pause, put on the brakes. Why is it we know about conferences? Why is it we know about K-Love? Why is it we know, uh, don't judge me, let you be judged? Why is it we know all this kind of stuff? Yet when we go verse by verse through the Bible, as if we were hanging out with Jesus, we don't even get stuff where he paused and said, you all better understand this. The problem is we're too 
distracted with proof texting the Bible. We're too distracted with jumping down to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, where I'm going to end today. We're too distracted just to find that in this chapter and forgetting all of this. You have got to not only read your Bible, you've got to read your Bible. And you've got to let your Bible teach you, okay? So we're going to take this in a way that you can clearly understand. It's pretty basic, but you got to understand it from the cultural point of view. So I'm going to make it plain. Somebody say, make it plain. Have you ever been downtown and you saw those dudes playing on the buckets? Like they're beating on the buckets? Okay. Now imagine these kids are beating on the bucket, but nobody's giving any money to them. And so they shout out and be like, man, tell me something you want me to play. And somebody goes, man, play me a sad song. And so they play on the bucket, you know, it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. They start playing that song, okay? And then everybody's like, boo, boo. And you're like, dude. You just told me to play a sad song. I played a sad song, and you don't like it, you know? And then imagine they start playing some, like, hype song. Give me that gasoline. I can't even think of another hype song from the streets right now. And then everybody's like, boo, boo, we hate that song. Now, could you imagine these bucket players saying back, they're like, Man, you told me to play a sad song. You didn't like it. You told me to play a happy song. You don't like it. I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. You've heard that phrase before. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you don't like me when I do, and you don't like me when I don't. John the Baptist came serious. He was serious, man. That guy wore camel's hair, ate locusts and wild honey, had bugs hanging out of his, his mouth, you know, dried up, you know, honey sticking to his beard. I just saw one of my brothers yesterday with some glump of stuff on their beard. And I'm like, that's nasty, dude. What is that? He's like, oh, that's beard wax. I'm like, man, rub that in better, dude. To take care of yourself, man. John the Baptist was just crazy serious. And everybody's like, man, he's too serious. He won't hang out with us. He won't explain it. He won't let our children come around and play while we're learning. And then here comes Jesus. Jesus like, y'all out of wine? Come on, bring it over here. Bring that water over here. Jesus comes in with barrels of wine as he turns the water into wine. He's hanging out with tax collectors. He's healing the adulterous. He's loving everybody. And they hate him for being too happy. They hated John the Baptist because he was serious, and they hate Jesus because he's happy. Now you get it? What does this say? Come on, I want you to get it. Because he stopped us and said, whoever's got ears, let them hear. Because here's the thing. Y'all ain't going to hell with an excuse that God didn't make it applicable to your life. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Some of y'all are so serious and deep, and you're like, no, that religious stuff, that's just for emotional women. But you're not going deep. You're refusing to do it, and you're just making excuses because there's tons of theology schools. There's tons of places to learn. It's not just your grandmama's religion to cry in church. And then there's our, there are others of you going, man, I come to a church, it's boring. I don't feel any emotion. Of course, not here, but somebody might say, I don't feel any emotion. And we're saying, we'll give you all the emotion, all the love. We will cry with you. We got tissues at the altar for you. But I don't feel it. No, you don't want to feel it. I don't, think, I, I don't think it makes sense. You don't want to think about it. Jesus is putting it back on them. And I can tell you as a pastor, I've gone through this so many times. I won't say the word damned because I'm not damned. Amen. I'm going to heaven. But I'll say I was criticized when I did and criticized when I didn't. So at one point in our church, I used to try to make everybody happy. Thank God I have been set free from that. A lot of these gray hairs have come from trying to make everybody happy. 
Amen. A lot of that weight. Oh, y'all get quiet now. That's all right. A lot of that weight that I had, a lot of that emotional stress that I had came from trying to make people happy. I still want to make you happy, but I want to do it through Christ and his word and let that just be my final thing. I can't go beyond that. Can't chase you down, in other words. But at this time of our church, there were two distinct things that happened, and a leader gave me this lesson. I'm going to share it with you, and maybe you can relate. So we had a great elder in our church, and he went through some tough times. So he was a good leader, went through some tough times with his family. And basically what he said to me was, was, hey, man, can you just back off some of the ministry off me right now? I just got too much going on in my life. I just need a little bit of space. It's not that I'm turning my back on God. I just need to take a breather. And I'm like, bro, you got it. He was leading the Bible study. So I was like, you want the Bible study out your house? Because it was at his house. He was like, no, no, no. Put it in my house. Just have somebody else teach. You got it. Do you want to be at the altar praying? No, no, no. I, I want to be at the end of every service able to come get prayer, sit in the chair. I just want to relax. No problem. You let me know when you're ready. Guess what? He ended up leaving the church saying he felt that he was left out of everything. Didn't have enough to do. Didn't feel like we appreciated him. I go, brother, this is exactly what you told me you wanted. But at that same exact time, I had a young man in the church get engaged at a youth service on, on a stage like this in our church, precious young man with this young lady. And this young lady who lived out of state happened to either cheat on him or break up and then immediately go with another woman. Honestly, I have to ask my wife. I can't remember the details. All I know is this woman left him heart broken, broke off the engagement. And I remember him being around the kitchen counter with me, crying and drops of his tears, hitting the kitchen counter, making little puddles. Like this dude was heartbroken. So I asked him, I said, bro, what do you want me to do for you right now? He's like, man, I need to go hard for God. I can't put my mind on this right now. Pastor, I want to keep preaching because he was one of our youth leaders. I want to keep leading. I want to keep going hard for God. Keep me in the game, coach, because I'll go crazy with this in my head. A couple weeks later, he left the church saying we burned him out, we abused him, didn't give him time to recover. <laughs> Stretch your hands towards your pastor right now and say, help him, Lord. I called up my pastor, and I said, Pastor, what is going on? I have tried to help these people. Both of their problems, nothing to do with me, nothing to do with the church, and all I did was try to help them. And they left telling me I helped them the wrong way when it was the way they wanted to be helped. And you know what my pastor said? Joe, some people, if you say A, they say B. If you say B, they say A. And I said to myself, man, I understand that because sometimes I make my wife mad and she says, well, just leave me alone. And then I leave her alone. And then she says, why are you leaving me alone? And then I come to her, joke around. She's like, you better leave me alone. And I walk back away. I said, oh, I can understand that with my wife. <laughs> she says A, but she means B. And then when she has B, she means A. And the sad truth here is, is, is that God is about ready to judge these people severely. The, the day of the Lord is coming on 70 AD, and that's going to be very painful for them. Jesus is going to prophesy it. He's even going to talk in a little bit like he wishes he could gather them together and spare them from this judgment. But the thing is, their attitude is wrong. And if we tie it back into the doubts that we face in life, we can see that the author here, Matthew, is teaching us that oftentimes God is reaching out to us, but it's our attitude that doesn't want to receive it. 
And so make sure in your times of doubt or when you're needing to be encouraged or grow in your faith, you're not saying, well, I don't like it like that and I don't like it like that. You're not doing that. Make sure you keep an open heart and say, if it's going to be serious, I'm ready for serious. I may not be a serious person normally, but I can take serious. I can appreciate serious stuff from God. And then other times, if God comes at the wedding and dancing and fun and you might be more of a serious person, say, hey, I can appreciate Jesus wanting to have fun and give me a life emotionally uplifting message. We have to be ready for both. Can I get an amen? amen? Making our way through the word because now look at verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. They didn't like it serious and they didn't like it fun. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda, for if the miracles that were performed in you have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, and those were Old Testament places that were bad that got judged, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to hell. That's literally what Jesus says. Chicago, will you be lifted up? No, you're going down. How many know Jesus just got serious with them? And sometimes people tell me, well, Jesus was only angry with religious people. He just let everybody else do their own thing. Man, he is condemning whole towns right now. Have you ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Have you ever heard of Noah's flood? This is real judgment. This is judgy Jesus. This is not Barney sing-along Jesus. This is Jesus literally looking at entire towns going, you're going down harder than Sodom and Gomorrah went down. You think you're going to get lifted up? No, you're going down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. And how many know what happened to Sodom? Got rained with fire and brimstone brought to dust. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Let's understand this. There are top of the list, and then there are bottoms of the list, aren't there? These guys are going right to the bottoms of the list. So hell isn't going to be the same for everybody either. There is a hell that everybody will go to, a lake of fire that those who don't know the Lord will be sent to. But there will be different degrees of punishment on that day, just as there will be different degrees of reward. And I talked about this before. That's where Dante's Inferno comes in. Not true, interesting stories, but it, but it gives you an idea of what could different levels of punishment be. What will the child molester be compared to the Catholic who never was born again? The one person who had a different religion is not as bad as the one who molested a child. Do you get that? I mean, we all understand that. Where do you think we get justice from? We didn't get that from the baboon or the chimpanzee. You don't get that from the guru through the zoo to you. How is it we can discern different moral things? You know, the one, the one who gets in a fight with their friend is different than the man who beats his wife, right? I mean, we, we, just, we can discern those things. The, the raping of a woman is different than the raping of a child. Both are hideous, but one is even more hideous, right? I mean, are we, are we on this? So he's saying to them, you guys are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, worse well, what was Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah was open homosexuality and an open rape. They would rape their enemies. They would rape their visitors. They would openly practice their homosexual orgies in public. They were a perverse people. They made New Orleans look like it was a monastery. And I lived in New Orleans, right? So, so why is he saying, you're worse? 
I mean, is it even imaginably, can you even imagine without having a perverse mind how it could get worse than that? Well, maybe it had nothing to do with the perversion. What do you think it made worse? See, what I think made it worse, going back to what made John the Baptist great. What made John the Baptist great? Did he do as many miracles as Moses did? Did he part Red Seas? Did he give them frosted flakes in the morning, as my one brother said, manna, which was crispy and sugary and sweet? That's okay. I thought that was more funny, but... No, John the Baptist didn't give him frosted flakes. John the Baptist didn't part Red Sea. But what made him great is he trusted God and humbled himself. What made these guys terrible? Was it that they had all of these sex parties, all these crazy things? No, they were prideful in the face of God. So ultimately, what does it come down to on this list right here? Humility and pride. All that other stuff in between is what leads us down a worse path. More pride will lead you to hurting people like children. More pride will cause you to do X, Y, and Z. But what was the worst pride that they could have? The worst pride a human could have would be to reject their creator in the face of, his, of, of the creator. They were rejecting Jesus while Jesus was there with them. And this would be like, and in our story, this would forever settle it. Like, if I saw Jesus, I would believe. No, all of these saw Jesus and didn't believe. All these people did. And they actually got worse punishment. So all these people now like, show me Jesus. You better be careful what you ask for because you would have the same pride you do now and have a worse judgment than you are getting now. So to much is given, much is required. He's talking to those towns with, with the most seriousness he can give them because the ultimate pride is to reject your creator, and they're doing that. Now, how many are ready for the good news? Yeah. Amen. Here we go, moms. We're coming to the good stuff. Well, that's good too, but this is encouraging, I should say. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. See, Jesus brings it right down to the basic level there. It's not based on how smart you are or how tough you are. It's just, do you trust me like a child trusts their father? How many here are children of God and you trust Jesus? Amen. Now watch this. I want everybody to get this. You want to see how awesome Jesus is? Because we've heard scriptures like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's John's version of this. Get this, because this is awesome. Matthew says this, how Jesus was teaching here. Yes, Father, for this is how you were pleased, are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. How many things? All things. No one knows the Son except the Father. Woo! And no one knows the Father except the Son and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal. Can you get to the Father other than the Son? Absolutely not. Are we being mean when we say that? No, we're saying exactly what Jesus says. Please scroll it down just a little bit. I want them to see this. All things have been committed to me by my Father. Let me show you how Jesus is God. God is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not three gods, one God and three persons. Matthew's going to end by teaching us, baptizing the name, singular, of our God, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, not in the names. He doesn't say baptize in the names, plural gods, like there's three gods. No, he says baptize in the names, singular, one God of the Father, Son, Spirit. Watch this. Does the Father have all power in all the universe? He's all powerful, right? If the Father says, hey, Jesus, hold this, all power, what does Jesus have to have to hold all that? He has to have all power. Could you contain all power right now? No. No. You couldn't even contain the electricity coming out this wall. 
Let's try that for an example one day. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that and put that on me going to the hospital. But if all things have been committed to him, that means all power, right? How about all knowledge? Because it says Jesus knows to hear our prayer. Jesus will answer them. So if the father has all knowledge and he says, here, son, hold all knowledge, how much knowledge does Jesus have? All knowledge. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's omniscient. And then guess what? If, if the Father has to be everywhere to do everything and sustain the universe, and then he says, Son, I want you to be everywhere, hold the power to sustain the universe and answer everyone's prayer. If the Father is omnipresent, what is Jesus now? Omnipresent. Now, the one question somebody might say is, if the Father gave it all to Jesus, does that mean he never had it? No, he had it. Before he came into creation, how is he getting it now in creation as a man, the God-man? The Son of God was always equal to the Father, but why did he become a man? He became a man to be like us, to get for us what we had lost, and to get the greatest privilege that a man has ever had, to be exalted to the name above every other name. So humanity has now been interfused with the divinity through Jesus. Now we, through Jesus, can take part in the divinity, but we never become Jesus, we never become a God, so forth and so on, but we get to share in his divine nature because because he brought together the Father and humanity. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Remember the Son of God preexisted the man, Christ Jesus. The Son of God becomes God in the flesh. Are you with me? Remember, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That's Jesus before creation. Now Jesus comes into creation, John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh. What is Jesus saying here? In flesh, the Father has given me everything I had as the Son of God. Isn't that powerful? Amen. Now, how many are ready for, like, that soft music part? Rachel, will you come forward, please? Turn down the lights. This is where we all come to church for, right? That good stuff at the end. Don't you love it that I tell you what I'm going to do before I do it? But still, you'll be crying in a little bit. You'll be like, but it's still powerful, Pastor. It still works. I know you tell me you're going to do it, but it still works. But I don't do it. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not me. I can tell you that I am doing nothing, literally. Look at verse 28. He told us who he was. And now he combines it all together. Because remember, we believe Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit to piece these chapters together. Chapters were not added till much later in the Bible's history. But how we see these sections of teachings, Matthew is being used by the Holy Spirit to combine thoughts together. And I do think chapters that we added in can help. And so at the beginning of this chapter, we see that John the Baptist, as awesome as he was, he's dealing with doubts. And he gets his doubts resolved from the people he trusts. We then see that Jesus starts to tell us, in comparison to John the Baptist, the people of the new covenant are that much more awesome. And then he shows us why he's going to judge these people. It's because he came serious and they didn't want it. He's come happy and they didn't want it. And he tells us exactly who's going to be getting judged. And it happened just like how he said. And then right there at the end, he goes, I'm going to tell you guys who I am. I'm the only one who knows the Father. No one gets to know him except to the one I give that knowledge to. Not Buddha, not Muhammad. Nobody gets the knowledge of the Father except by Jesus. And then he ends 
with probably one of the best passages you'll ever read in the scripture. And I would have done an injustice. Not saying every time preachers proof text and just pull it out. It's wrong because sometimes we don't have a chance to read an hour worth of the Bible, right? But if you don't understand the context and all you hear about is Jesus carrying your burdens, you don't get why he's carrying your burdens. Because as we begin to read this, keep in mind doubts. Keep in mind judgment. Keep in mind your attitude. Keep in mind who Jesus is. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The simple history lesson here is in a shape like this, oxen, Two together used to pull carts, one on one side, one on another side. Sometimes it would be plowing. Other times it would be taking people places. And then they in history would learn the best way to train up the weaker ox or the younger ox would be with the stronger, older ox. And so they would generally put those together, weaker and stronger, older with younger. And Jesus is saying, I'm the stronger, you're the weaker. I'm the more mature, you're the child. And so if you give me your burdens, I will carry them for you. If you give me your life, I will carry your life. And I know we've heard this before, and we believe it. Nobody said it was going to be easy, but hold on. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Somebody did say it was easy. It was Jesus. Why? Because somehow as a Christian, now we wouldn't feel pain when we would lose somebody? No, but in the pain, someone carries it. Why? Because when someone breaks up with us, we don't feel hurt. No, but when someone breaks up with us, someone carries it with us. It will be easy to go through life with Jesus compared to going through life without Jesus. When I see people go through cancer without Jesus, I feel more compassion from them not having Jesus than cancer. Because I'm like, man, where do you turn? Where do you go? We even had a cancer survivor in this church, Lauren, testify. I would rather have cancer and go through it with Jesus than to never have cancer and not have Jesus. I don't even know. Let me just be honest with you. I don't even know how some of y'all sleep at night without Jesus. I've gotten to the point where I depend on Jesus just to go to bed with my right mind. Some of you are ignoring your problems. You are suppressing your problems. You are pretending you don't have problems. And God is saying, stop doing that. Bring me your problems. Make an exchange. My yoke for your yoke. Your ways for my ways. Your humble, your pride for my humility. Your restlessness for my rest. Your hard life for my easy life. Your burdened life for my burden-free life. And I can't tell you what it feels like, all I can, in a way that will convince you, all I can do is tell you that's exactly how I would describe it. Because I've gone through my times, even as a Christian, and I have felt the yoke start to get hard. And I have felt the life start to get hard. And I have felt emotions start to get hard. And I have felt pride raise up in my heart going, nobody knows the problems I face. But every time, every time, every time, somebody say every time, every time God says you're doing it wrong. If you feel life is hard, you're doing it wrong. If you feel your burdens are heavy, you're doing it wrong. If you feel restless, you're doing it wrong. If you feel that this is the lot you're going to be in and it is busted and disgusted, you are doing it wrong. 
I want to meet you at the place where we exchange yokes with Jesus. I'm not promising to give you an easy ride, so please don't show up at my counseling door for the next five sessions and ask me to prove it. I can't. I can't counsel you into this. I can't Bible bash it into you. If I could have another hour of service and repeat myself again, I would. you got to ask them when we go back there and do our administration at the end. I pretty much preach it to them all over again while we're sitting in the administration office. I'm like, you know, God's like this and the Word's like this, and I got so much more out of this. And I listen to it again. It won't work. I listen to my own messages again, and sometimes I have to decide, are you going to believe that? Because that is not something your pastor gives you. That is not what a man gives you. That is between you and him. It is three words. Come to me. So if you are here today and you say, Pastor, I have tried that and it hasn't worked. What did you try? I want to know. Because you say you came to Jesus and it didn't work. I just have to say, now I don't believe that. Because Jesus literally says, come to me. Come to me to me. Maybe the problem is, can I be honest before we go? Maybe the problem is you left before he was done. Maybe you left before he was done. You came, that's right, but you left before he had taken that yoke and that burden. I have met people at these altars in some of the hardest times of their life, and and I have come to my knees with them, and I have brought them down to the altar and laid my hands on them and said, I will not leave here until you know you've exchanged a yoke with Jesus today. If you need that today, you may do that with the pastor. You can do that with me. I will tell my children, go take mama out, go bless her. I'm going to sit at this altar until someone exchanges a yoke with Jesus. Until you walk up out of here, until you stand up and go, my yoke is easy. My load is light because Jesus gave me his. I mean, let's just close our eyes right now and think about what we care about. Because if what you're caring about is what you're carrying by yourself, what you care about is going to hurt you. With eyes closed, head bowed, let me ask you a question. Are you trying to save yourself? Because the first thing you got to do is admit you can't save yourself. Give your heart to Jesus right now if you haven't before. Say, Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Make me a new person. Carry my past. Take it away from me. Those of you who are here today and you've already prayed a prayer like that, you would say you're saved. Let me ask you, are you carrying your cares or are you let Jesus carry your cares? What is it today? Talk to him. Tell him. Say, Jesus, carry the cares of my family. Jesus, carry the burdens of my job. Jesus, carry the burdens of my my health and my well-being. Jesus, carry the burden of this culture that oppresses me or holds me back. Jesus, you know the burdens that we carry. Carry them, Jesus, for us. A few moments right now can change your life. We'll have altar workers up here in the band. We'll close in prayer in just a moment. But I want even those altar workers, band members, to pray. Is what you're carrying about carrying you and bringing you down? Or are you letting what you carry about be carried by Jesus? Come on, don't let what you care about bring you down because you're carrying it all by yourself. I can't carry four kids, five kids, six kids by myself. I couldn't carry one. I need you, Jesus. What happened between four and five? I stopped trusting him in those moments to let him carry it all. How did my weight go up 80 pounds? Because I stopped carrying, uh, letting Jesus carry my health. 
How did I get stressed out? Come on, look at your life. I'm not blaming you for your problems. Trust me, I'm not blaming you that problems are there. I'm just saying now you're responsible to carry them with Jesus or to bear that burden of carrying it by yourself. A few moments can change your life right now. Carry our burdens, Jesus. Rachel, would you sing something from your heart about carrying our burdens and Jesus taking our loads, and then we'll pray in just a moment. Jesus, take our burdens today. Maybe you're going through something in your marriage. Jesus, carry this marriage. Maybe you have bad habits in your life. Jesus, carry me to freedom. Some of you need to say right now, I'm not, I'm coming, but I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Maybe you came before, but you left. Do what you want to do. Let God do it. Do what you want to do. Let God do it. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Before we stand up and get ready to dismiss, remember we talked about John the Baptist, and he had to trust that even though he wasn't seeing it yet, it was still happening. That's the faith we need to have today. Because you don't see the future. You don't see how this works out five years from now. But you trust him today. And that is where it starts. Because if there's never a day where it starts, you can never see the end of it. It makes sense, right? We can't see the end unless we have a beginning. And today has to be some of your beginnings in this. I know with me, I had to stop during that time and go, that is over in Jesus' name. This is forward now. And I can promise you, he carried the burdens. He made it light. He made it lie. I still felt it. I still knew it was there. But easy would be the way I would describe going through it compared to how I was going through it before. It's like before, I felt like I didn't know how to ski. I was tumbling down the hill. Going through it with Jesus, I was in his sled. Same bumps, same speed, same things going on in life. But instead of tumbling down the hill like somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, I was safely transcending to where I needed to go. God wants to bring you in, to bring you through. I'm going to say that before we go, because some of you are going to need to come up for prayer, and we're going to make time for that today. But just hear that word today. Some of you got to be brought in so you can be brought out. you got to bring Jesus in so he can bring you through. There has to be a start so that there can be an end. If you don't like the season you're in, you need to start now to see it end. John the Baptist is eventually going to get beheaded, But he's going to go there with grace and poise and boldness and courage because the situation now doesn't matter. He knows who Jesus is. And even if it all goes wrong, it's still worth it with Jesus. And so we're not promising you in this church that once you come to Jesus, he carries your burden, you never suffer again. We're saying now it's worth it and you can go through it no matter how bad it gets. No, there's a difference. We're not promising you a yellow brick road. We're promising you no matter what road you go through, you're going traveling with Jesus. It's like the difference of you traveling right now on a dead donkey or getting in an F-22 Raptor with the Air Force. How far is that dead donkey going to take you? Not very far, and you're going to have to drag it, let alone not be able to ride on it. Stop dragging things through life. Get on God's F-22. In the name of Jesus, if you believe it, can I hear an amen? Come on, give it up for Jesus as the band and altar workers come.
Woo! That's a Mother's Day service, amen? Would you stand up with me, please? Let's get the band and altar workers to come. Mothers, you know you need Jesus, amen? Come on, moms. Come to Jesus this week as you go through your burdens. Fathers, come to Jesus. Children, come to Jesus. Visitors, come to Jesus. Everybody come to Jesus. Here's how we're going to end today. Uh, Juan was somewhere around here. He's got a camera. He'll do portraits for you guys and your family since you got dressed up for church. There you are, Juan. Raise your, raise your hand. Thank you. Let's give it up for Juan helping us out today. Thank you, my brother. And if you want to join the after party, come on up and get prayer. He won't go anywhere. He'll wait for you. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may go today. We're going to worship in closing. If you need prayer, come up to them. But you are dismissed. I'll let you guys go on that. Thank you. Thank you. Feel free to worship and pray. Hang out if you want. Thank you for coming. Jesus.